Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by a group of uh, colleagues, uh, of course, my two co-hosts, uh, Chris Dorides and Marissa Di Natale. Hi, guys. Hey, Mark. Hey, Mark. Good to see you. Hi, Chris. Uh, Jobs Friday, May, oh no, this is now June, June 2nd, uh, 2023. So we've got a lot to talk about on jobs. And to help us with that, uh, we've brought in uh, Bernard, Bernard Yaros. Good to see you, Bernard. Hi, Mark. Good to see you. Say something in Arabic, just anything, <laughs> quickly. Ahlan, uh, wasahlan. That's uh, hello. Oh, I thought it meant, Mark, you know everything. I thought that's oh, what no. <laughs> uh, But that's good. That's pretty cool. You yeah. sound, it sounded uh, exactly on point. And uh, Matt Colliar, Matt, uh, good to have you. Matt, have you been on Inside Economics before? No, this is the uh, inaugural. Oh, really? Yeah, so this is what? nice. Nice to be here. So watch we have out to for, face him. I, oh, I was going to say, watch out for Marissa. <laughs> It goes okay. right for the jugular every right. single time. It's good to know. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm gun shy now. I need I need backup. All right. Good, good to have you on, Matt. And of course, Matt and Bernard, along with Dante. Dante's AWOL today on Jobs Friday. He's generally with us. But the three of the these of the those guys manage economic view. So really following the economic statistics uh real time. Good good day to have you back on. Just got back from uh, Toronto uh, with clients at a, a dinner with Canadian clients. I will say, uh, uh, surprisingly more optimistic about things. I don't know if you remember back, but we had a dinner in Toronto back last fall, and they were darn right pessimistic. And it, of course, I might have a, a compositional bias issue because you know people at the dinner may have changed a little bit. But uh, I'm saying they they felt a lot more optimistic than than uh, they were last time. Uh, but we're going to find out how optimistic you guys are too, because at the end of all this, we're going to uh, talk about probabilities of recession. And somewhere along the way, we'll we'll do the stats game as well. And there's, I feel, almost feel like, I don't know if you guys feel like this, but I feel like there's so much to talk about. No? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah there is. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to get to it all. It feels like a two-hour podcast, but let's dive right in. Okay. Uh, Marissa, we're going to turn it to you. Can you give us a rundown on today's uh, May 2023 jobs numbers? Yeah, it was a very interesting <laughs> report. Um, so non-farm payroll employment rose by 339,000. That blew all the forecasts out of the water, right? We were only expecting about 215,000 and we were on the high side of consensus forecasts. So a significantly stronger report than we were expecting. Add to the, that that the previous two months of March and April saw both saw upward revisions to job growth that amounted to 93,000 combined. So almost another 100,000 on top of that 339. Um, that significantly moves up the three-month moving average of, of job growth. It is a, quite a large increase in employment. It's the largest since we saw since the start of the year. Job growth on the payroll side, it was pretty broad-based. The diffusion index moved up above 60%, which is the percentage of industries that are either holding employment steady or adding to payrolls. We saw some big gains across many industries um, government had a quite a large gain. They added 56,000 jobs over the month. In the private sector, job Can I gains, ask, was that state, local, federal? What, what was that about? The, I think the it was, let me see. Bernard, do you know offhand? 
Uh, I think it's generally more of state local. I would state say. local. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, it I was to look. well. It was everything, but everything. local okay. government was the biggest addition. So it okay. was both local education mm-hmm. and not it non education. That okay. was like two thirds of it, but federal and state added as well. Got it. Um, professional business services had a very large gain. Education and healthcare had a large gain, and so did leisure hospitality. Although the gain there was, I think, 41,000. So that's a a little bit smaller than we've seen in some of the previous months, but still quite large. The only major industries that, oh, and I should also mention the construction industry added 25,000 jobs, and that was more than double the gain in the previous month. So despite, you know, we had seen a couple months ago that the industry lost a small amount of jobs, and we thought, okay, maybe this is the higher interest rate environment and the slowdown in the housing market starting to kick in, but construction is really, really resilient. And that also was across the board, across residential, non-residential contractors, building heavy construction, kind of the whole gamut within the industry. Um, manufacturing lost jobs, and that was in non-durable good manufacturing. Um, And then the other industry to lose jobs was information. This includes tech stuff. It includes media, entertainment, telecom, that kind of thing. And pretty much every component within information lost jobs. Um, Everything else added, at least on a broad-based industry basis. Um, Some, so if we're thinking about this from the perspective of monetary policy, this is obviously really, really strong. That's not what the Fed doesn't want to see a strengthening job market, but some good news, at least on the payroll side, that came out of it is that earnings growth moderated a bit compared to the prior month. So two things. Wages, uh, average hourly uh, earnings. That's right. Average hourly earnings growth was 0.33% up over the month. Um, over the year, it was up 4.3%. So those are both slower than we've seen in, in the prior month. The other thing is the work week fell. So the number of hours work ticked down by 0.1 hour. And this is this is pretty low. If you look at it historically, it's, it's the lowest, it's the smallest, shortest work week, I guess, that we've seen since the pandemic. Um, so that's, I think, what I want to say about the payroll survey. We can come back and fill in whatever I forgot. That's important. Okay. Did you want the, to go into the household survey? Yeah. So the yeah. the interesting thing to it me about the, report to the confusion, right? Is the, that the household survey shows almost the exact opposite as the payroll survey. So on the household survey side, and just so everyone is, you know, we know what we're talking about here. The household survey is a survey of households that the Census Bureau calls people up or visits them in their home. It's a much smaller sample size. It's about 60,000 households. So the estimates of it are less reliable. However, this is where the unemployment rate comes from, labor force data. So the unemployment rate rose three-tenths of a percentage point from 3.4% to 3.7. is still a low unemployment rate, but that's a big movement in one month. I mean, even just a movement in either direction, that is that is quite large. You have to go back over a year to see a movement in one month of 0.3%. Unemployment rose by over 400,000. The number of unemployed people rose by over 400,000. And employment, the number of employed people fell. So, and it, so it was really like 
the opposite of what the the uh, payroll survey showed. And at the same time, the labor force held steady. So the labor force increased modestly up by a little bit over 100,000 people. Um, and the labor force participation rate held the same as it was over the month. So nothing strange was going on with the labor force. It really was an increase in the number of unemployed people. And you can see that in some of the details. So if you look at how long people have been unemployed, there were a lot of newly unemployed people over the month, people unemployed less than five weeks. And also the reasons people gave for unemployment. Most of the increase in unemployment came from people who said they had permanently lost a job, you know, not, not quit. Actually, the number of quitters fell according to the household survey. So really very um, difficult to reconcile the, this survey with the very, very strong payroll survey. I mean, it it happens. It happens. It's not that uncommon for them to kind of show different things. But I was looking at the magnitude of the difference between the two, and it's it's enormous. You have to go back like to 2010 to see a difference this big between just the employment change uh, in the two surveys. So just a couple things before we move on. Uh, I I thought, and I hadn't, I haven't had a chance to look, but I thought if you look at the household survey uh, reconciled to the payroll survey, so they're different, conceptually different. And BLS Bureau of Labor Statistics Keeper of the Data does publish the household survey app more apples to apples to the payroll survey that that actually showed a pretty sizable increase. Is that right? Do you know? I, Bernard, yeah. do you know? That's correct. It, uh, the C, the adjusted household employment uh, figure actually increased 394,000, uh, which would be consistent with what we saw with non-farm payrolls. And I guess the, the reason why household employment fell, and this goes to the, the measurement differences, is self-employed. The number of yes, self-employed fell big, Yeah, there was a big, yeah, yes. Yeah, okay. Okay, so that helps reconcile it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, or somewhat. I mean, yeah, that's based on um, the gain in employment, they're both pretty strong apples to apples, right? Would you say right, that? Right, right. Yeah, when, okay. when you when you try to make the definitions the same, yeah. Okay. Second question goes around unemployment. That did increase. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that a lot of it was because of a sharp decline in self-employed might suggest maybe it, there's noise in there, right? I mean, going back to your point it's a small sample and I'm not sure I read too much into it. But where where do you think underlying unemployment is, abstracting from the month monthly vagaries of the data, the you know, uh, up three seven, down three four, where do you think we are? I think we're kind of in the middle of that. Some we're probably around three and a half percent somewhere. I okay. mean the other, and I know we'll get into this, you know, the other thing is if you if you reconcile all the other employment data and all the other labor market data that came out this week, that's more in line with what we saw on the payroll survey side than on the household survey side. Yeah. It feels like to me, unemployment's a rock solid three and a half percent ish. And that's where we've been for more than uh, at least a year. It, mm-hmm. it has, you know, one month it might be a little higher, one month like today, uh, it was a little higher, one, one month a little lower, but net net about three and a half percent. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, uh, let me turn to you next, Bernard, to fill in the gaps there. Anything you would call out that the that uh, Mercer missed in her rundown? I think one thing that I've been looking at in recent months has been the composition of those employed, uh, unemployed 
So you the uh, the BLS does provide the composition of unemployed uh, persons who are either on temporary leave, whether they're on permanent uh, job loss, whether they're re-entrants into labor force or new entrants, uh, others who are uh, completing seasonal work. Uh, and one thing that was concerning towards the end of last year and early into this year was the rising share of unemployed that were on permanent job loss that rose from about 21% in uh, towards the end of the third quarter and rose to nearly uh, 27% earlier this year. But that has since started to tick down and, and, and in this job report, it was roughly flat. So I don't see any worsening in the, it, 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 I don't see any worsening in the composition of unemployed persons uh, nationally. Um, and it would be, you know, even though we're looking at a low level in the aggregate of, the aggregate number of unemployed is low, but it would be concerning if you start to see a growing and growing share of that being uh, permanent job losses. Yeah, but you don't see it. So You don't it, see it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, Matt, anything you want to call out uh, in the bowels of the other numbers? I know you dig deep too. I think that 3.7 unemployment rate, like you guys, I, I think is maybe a little bit misleading. This isn't this big uptick of people coming off the couch to now look for a job, which pulled us from 3.4 to 3.7. It's unincorporated self-employed people. Uh, it's a definition that could, could be unpacked a bit more, but they were working. They were doing something, whether that's that's not viable for them anymore. Um, it's not this 400,000 plus increase in a labor force, which is, I mean, that's the balancing that the Fed's looking for. So it, it kind of diminishes that increase for those who are really leaning on the unemployment rate to say, okay, here's the loosening has arrived. Um, so maybe a little bit of uh, false false loosening there. Okay. So, so Chris, let me turn to you. And if, if there's anything that you want to call out, that'd be great. But more more significantly, just what's your broad takeaway here in terms of what's going on in the labor market? You know, taking all these discordant kind of pieces of information coming from the report, all the cross currents. You know, how are you reading this? And then I want yeah. to ask you how the markets are reading it, but because that seems interesting as well, but but absolutely, uh, uh, feel free to take any of those questions in any order you want. Sure. I, I'd say, first of all, I think uh, this report underscores the um, the number that's in every report, which is plus minus 130K. Uh, you know what that is? That's the 90% uh, confidence error. interval around yeah. the payroll, right? So right. Yeah. Uh, for that reason, I don't think we want to read too much into any given month here, especially right. given the, uh, the differences here. I think the report does suggest strength still, certainly in terms of uh, hiring. And we had the JOLTS report earlier. I won't reveal any numbers but for the statistics game, but it does suggest that the labor market remains quite resilient, right? We can, we, to be determined how resilient it is and what the specific number is, but I don't see any question that things are falling apart here. Or, and to They're Matt's not falling point, apart. They're not resilient. Falling, and to Matt's yeah. point, I don't see 3.7 as really being truly underlying uh, unemployment. unemployment here, that there's, there's a lot of noise in the data. So uh, so that's my take in terms of what the Fed does with this. I don't think they, I think they take that into account. I don't think they'll overreact to this report in one direction or another, kind of a little bit here for everyone uh, to enjoy, um, right? It doesn't suggest that things are particularly overheated or that things are falling apart as well. So I don't know that this report makes the difference in terms of their call. I think they'll wait for inflation, other measures uh, before they um, decide what to do here. Can I ask on, before we, yeah, before we go to the yeah. market, just one quick question. So yeah. we kind of came to the underlying unemployment rate 
is about three and a half percent. That's kind of sort of where we've been for a, a year, a year or so. And the today's numbers doesn't sway anyone's thinking around that. Uh, what about underlying monthly payroll employment growth? What do you think that is now? Uh, is it 300K? Is it 250, 200? Do you have a sense of that? It's it's hard. It's hard <laughs> uh, yeah. to really pin it down, but I think it's probably between 200, 250 would be my, you do. Okay. my guess. Um, right. When everything is said and done and the revisions uh, come in, but that that's my sense of things here. Right. And just for context, it, it, right now, it feels like that's consistent with stable unemployment because labor force is growing 200 to 250K as well. Right. But it, that's not sustainable though for long, right? Given underlying demographics, doesn't feel like we can sustain labor force and job growth of 200 to 250K, meaning it's, if we if jo- if labor demand remains that strong, if job growth remains that strong, at some point, labor force isn't going to be able to keep up. Unemployment is going to start declining again. Wage growth is going to start accelerating again. The Fed's going to start raising rates again, right? That's right. Although it's been, I, at least yeah, I'm yeah, I mean, surprisingly resilient, in, as you say. <laughs> they yeah. could keep showing up. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't want to, I'm uh, not confident in terms of the timing of that. I, I agree with you. Certainly at some point, right, got to run out. Uh, but is it next month, the month after? I don't know. I've been burned now a few months in a row here. So (laughs) it's pretty incredible, actually. Yeah, it is incredible. Yeah. Let me ask you one more question. And I've asked it before, but I keep asking it. Uh, 3.5%, does that feel like full employment or are we beyond full employment? Is the full employment unemployment rate, the Nehru, higher than 3.5%? You know, what's, what's your thinking around that? So I, I think it's right around there. Right, right. around three and a half. Right around three and a half, maybe three okay. seven. If that's yeah, okay. If, if at the end of the day yeah. that shows up, but you know, I keep pointing back to the wages, uh, average hourly earnings, which of course isn't the best measure, but still a reasonable measure. It's still on the high side, so it would suggest a little bit of heating up uh, there. So maybe there's some, maybe we're just over uh, full employment here, but. Um, Tough to make so, call. so three and a half percent is a little. Out, it feels like it's a little outside the consensus, right? I think if you ask the average economist, the economist at the Fed, they'd say closer to four, maybe four. even higher than that. Yeah. Okay. Let me go around the horn very quickly and ask same question: Do you think three and a half percent is consistent with full employment, or is that beyond full employment, uh, Bernard? Yeah, I would say three and a half is three and a half consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Marissa. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, I always go back to the job market we were in before the pandemic too, right? And we had a very low unemployment rate. We didn't have an acceleration in wage growth. So I don't think that this is where we've overshot a ton. We're probably right in the ballpark of where full employment is. Yeah. Okay. And Matt, do you want to take the other side? I dare you. I would. I was planning on it. Um, Oh, there. Okay. Oh, baby. Okay. I'm going to step away from the uh, unemployment. I mean, 3.5, 3.5, yes, 2019 tells you that's probably not an overheating U.S. economy. But if you look at like prime age, labor force participation, all those type of metrics, uh, I don't know where else you're getting. Uh, you're, you're above what you were in 2019. I don't know how many more people can be relied on to keep coming into the labor force. Uh, so to me, that seems uh, like it leans towards the overheating side of things. Um, 77.6, that's women's 
prime age labor force participation rate today. And that's the highest ever. So, oh, I stole somebody's number. You stole, uh, <laughs> that's um, maybe we should stop this line of questioning. Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, what about, can I ask fine. you though, and I've wondered about this, uh, overall employment to population is still below pre-pandemic levels. And that goes to, you know, one of the reasons why uh, participation is, is, hasn't recovered is uh, older workers, uh, folks that are over the age of 65, they kind of stepped out and haven't come back in, but maybe they're starting to come back in. They or That's where we're getting, I don't know. I didn't look at that labor before. It did not. Chris is saying, no, they, that, that participation rate did not no, rise. It actually dipped a little, I believe. Oh, did it really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the only age groups that aren't at or above in terms of participation and employment where they were prior to the pandemic are 20 to 24 year olds where participation is a little bit below where it was prior to the pandemic and people 65 and older. Yeah. 65 but every and other older. age group yeah. is. So yeah, I mean, the 65 and older accounts for the lion's share of the missing workers, right? But but if you add, if the question is, as Matt posed, where are those workers going to come from? That, that could be it. It would have right. to be them. That, yeah, that is, I'm agreeing. It doesn't have yeah. to be, but most most logically. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. where most people are out of the labor force. Right. I'm wondering if we should do, well, but before we, I was going to say, maybe we should do the stats game before we keep going. But before we do that, uh, turning back to you, Chris, the market reaction. Holy cow. I mean, yeah. the equity market is taken off. Now, I know the debt limit agreement's got to be playing a role, but- <laughs> It felt like, I mean, I was, I've been watching it. It took off after the employment report. I mean, really took off. I haven't looked last minute or so, so maybe it's back down again. But I saw the Dow up over 600 points. And the bond market also sold off in, in that uh, long-term treasury yields, 10-year treasury yields were up five, six, seven basis points, which is a pretty big move in a given day. Uh, but what's, well, not uh, anymore, right? It's, oh, it seems like oh, we go five, six, you know, oh, that's true. Humans. The volatility in the, in the in the bond market is incredible, yeah. and that's a topic for another podcast. Yeah, by the that's way. right. That's right. But uh, do you have you looked at the futures market for Fed funds? You know, what are markets discounting? Uh, has it has the discounting with regard to the a Fed move at the next meeting changed? Yeah, it's uh, two thirds. Two thirds of participants suggest a pause or skip. Pause. You wanna, uh, okay, say, and uh, a third say uh, a hike. Okay, well, that's interesting. Right. And what last week it was uh, the reverse, right? People were, the majority were saying hike and uh, the minority were saying pause. So, so, so clearly what, things are moving. Yeah. What do you think is going on there? You know, why? I mean, given that if you taken at face value, that employment number would say, hey, well, I guess there's a lot of cross currents there, but that's, the top line payroll employment number would say, suggest, hey, maybe they would tighten, but that's not what the market's thinking at this point. Yeah. Well, my interpretation of the market's thinking, this is a confusing report. Okay. <laughs> um, right. You know, I'm not sure how to, how the Fed's reading this. I, yeah. I think the Fed's going to wait. Uh, they don't have a strong case uh, to be made here to, to hike. I'm going to, I'm assuming that they'll, they'll wait and see at this point. Right? But those futures market, they turn around pretty quickly. So, you know, a few yeah, more. Yeah, for sure. Here. Yeah. They, they swing I, wildly my... in any given hour. They can swing pretty wildly. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I don't see this report as being proof positive or definitively moving the Fed towards a hike. Okay. Bernard, do you have a, yeah, I know you follow the futures pretty carefully. Any view there on what 
you know, what's going on in the market reaction? Was is that surprising? Yeah, I, I think it's just it's just confusion, and they probably just markets could just be seeing this uh, this confused report as just being further sign of resilience and further odds of a soft landing. That's probably soft it. Landing. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, why don't we do this? Let's let's uh, before we pay the play the stats game. Let's uh, now talk about the debt limit, uh, which is now deal, which is now I guess president hasn't signed the piece of legislation yet i don't think but it's gotten through congress house senate and, and it's going to his desk and he's going to sign it just in time uh and then we'll come back and play the stats game and then go on to some other topics um uh but i'll turn to you bernard what because i know you've been doing we you and i've been doing a lot of work here with, along with chris uh what do you think the maybe you can just quickly summarize don't spend a lot of time summarizing the deal because it's all over the place Mm-hmm. But more, more importantly, uh, the macroeconomic consequences of the deal. Yeah. So uh, without going into all of the details, it's still important to say that the most important piece of the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which is the debt ceiling uh, deal that uh, will suspend the debt limit until January 2025. So it'll effectively remove the debt limit as an issue until after the presidential election next year. The biggest component of this are caps on federal defense and non-defense discretionary spending uh, next year and the year after. So as the law is written, the non-defense budget should shrink by about 8% next year. And in the following year, uh, growth in non-defense and the non-defense budget would be limited to just uh, 1%. Uh, on the other hand, the defense budget will be allowed to grow by 3% next year, but in the following year, its growth will also be limited to um, to 1%. Uh, so these caps on discretionary spending are going to re- are forecast to reduce budget deficits by about $170 billion over the next two years. These caps are only for two years, and after that, uh, the assumption is that spending is just going to grow in line with rising prices in the economy. Um, an important point, though, it, you know, before I get into the macroeconomic uh, consequences, uh, is that there were a lot of side deals made between negotiators um, and that are not explicit or that are not written in the legislative text, but they're going to come into play once we actually once uh, uh, lawmakers start writing up the fiscal 2024 budget uh, later this summer in early fall. Uh, and so there's a lot of side agreements that essentially shift around money. Uh, and uh, you know, allow, you know, allow uh, appropriators to adjust non the non defense appropriations higher to be more consistent with current uh, levels. So in reality, uh, when we look at nominal uh, the nominal defense uh, non defense budget next year, it's probably going to be slightly lower or flat relative to current uh, levels. So depending on what you assume, you do get different uh, macroeconomic uh, consequences. So if if we take the Fiscal Responsibility Act at face value, I would expect that you see a reduction in real GDP by about uh, three-tenths of a percent. The unemployment rate would probably be higher uh, by two-tenths of a percent, uh, and non-farm employment would be reduced by nearly 200,000. Uh, and the peak of these impacts would be late 2024, early 2025. Um, so this is, would be the upper bound, but if we include the side deals, which are going to mitigate the impact on non-defense, then you're talking about even smaller uh, yeah. impacts. I, I would say, you know, real GDP is reduced maybe closer to uh, 0.19%, yeah. a one-tenth of a percent increase in the unemployment rate and a reduction in non-farm employment by closer to 130,000. So it's a headwind. 
but we have to consider this in uh, against the alternative, which would have been a treasury default on the government's uh, obligations and an almost guaranteed recession later this year. So any of us, I'm sure, would take this deal over the alternative. Yeah, anyway. I, I think it's about as good a deal as you could get uh, from a macroeconomic perspective. I mean, this is really not much of anything. Uh, and the fact that both sides were equally angry at it, it's, it's a good sign. Good sign. It just shows that it was a, 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 a straight down the line. Uh, in, in my sense, is a, bill. if they had gone through the normal budget process, they might have landed pretty close to where they landed anyway. Exactly. Yeah. So all that drama for nothing, really. Uh, again, going back to the points we were making in previous podcasts, it might be a good idea to get rid of this thing, this debt limit. Yeah, exactly. Thing. Yeah. This is really not advancing the ball to any significant degree. Uh, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, thank goodness. And they, one of the really positive things just to reinforce it is the limit is suspended, uh, until January of 2025. So we get this thing on the other, the other side of the election. So that doesn't get involved. And it also, uh, uh provides some budget mechanisms. I guess that's the right way of describing it to help make sure that the government gets the funding it needs at the end of this, this fiscal year, which is the end of September, so that there's no government shutdown, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I, I would say the odds of a government shutdown later this year are significantly reduced because yeah. if they don't provide a full year budget for fiscal 2024 by the end of this uh, calendar year, then you're talking about an automatic limit to all discretionary spending, including defense to 1% growth. Um, and that's obviously what, you know, that would be a, uh, uh, something that wouldn't be tolerated on both Can sides. Can you explain the side deals? They're not. It's not legislative. Are they binding in any sense? I mean, they're what does not that mean? binding. It's so it's it's just money that's good. so. One example is that they're going to rescind about twenty billion dollars that were in funds that were provided to the IRS under the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, and part of that money is going to be just repurposed uh, and uh, to other non-defense programs, which will alleviate the 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 cut in this deal in the law itself so it's like uh, a handshake deal saying in the appropriations process the, the yeah. lawmakers are going to do this exactly yeah right okay yeah interesting one other aspect of the deal was around student lending and uh the, the president agreed to end the moratorium on student loan payments uh i think that is as of September uh, of this year. And there's some hand-wringing about how how significant an impact that will have. Now, that doesn't affect the budget, the macro impacts you just discussed, Bernard, because we were assuming that was going to happen anyway. It's, uh, it, that was already baked in the- uh, in That our was baked forecast. in. Yeah. yeah, that was going to happen regardless uh, if there was a debt limit deal or not. But let's talk about that because I know there are some folks uh, hand-wringing about that. And Chris, I, you spent a boatload of time on student loan- issues what what can you just explain this a little bit in more detail and what the macroeconomic consequences of ending the moratorium on student loan payments might be yeah sure so there are about 45 million borrowers with student loan federal student loans right so start repaying come uh, september 1st it's about five billion dollars a month in terms of uh remittance, remittances uh to the government so that's you know i guess positive for the budgetary standpoint but because uh, just so, to remind people that the student loan most student loans are now government from the that's right directly from the government right okay yeah over 90 percent over 90 percent right yeah uh so implications would be of course uh well, people have to start paying again so that's going to cut down in terms of their 
spending, uh, maybe they're saving uh, activity elsewhere. Uh, but by and large, I suspect that uh, most uh, most borrowers are prepared for this. Right, it's going to hurt. Right, they're going to reduce some of their activity elsewhere. But I don't expect that uh, all of a sudden we'd see a, a wave of delinquencies uh, from them. Now, that's the majority. There, even before the moratorium, there was always this pocket of students who got a loan, in particular, who got a loan and didn't complete their degree. Right, so they ended up with a, a burden that they really couldn't service given their current levels of income. I suspect those people are going to be in uh, under pressure once again when the payments restart. One caveat here is that there is, uh, or the Biden administration is pushing this uh, income-based or income-driven repayment uh, plan that they have, which would reduce the uh, the amount that borrowers have to pay well, five, to five percent of their income and shorten the term for which they would have to uh, repay as well. So, to the extent that uh, borrowers do take advantage of those programs, right, that could certainly help ease some of that uh, financial stress uh, that they're facing. So I see this as certainly you know, having some drag uh, overall on the, on spending and the broader economy, but uh, I don't see this as uh, triggering a wave of defaults or anything of that magnitude. Yeah. So 5 billion a month times 12 months gets you 60 billion. You divide by 27 trillion GDP. Yeah. That's two tenths of a percent or something, if my arithmetic is right. And that kind of feels like that might be an upper bound because right they're not going to the student loan borrowers aren't going to cut all the way back on on the five billion they've got you know some of those folks have savings and other sources of income and I, and I also think the income driven plan they call them income driven plans now right income driven IDR payment plans IDRs I changed the name, but that may also smooth out some of these effects as well. Right. It might not be exactly five billion, certainly not right away. Five billion, okay. That's so right. I guess it's kind of other- a headwind, but it's kind of really very modest headwind to the macro economy. That's right. And the other wild card here is that the uh, forgiveness program, the Biden proposal to right. uh, forgive ten thousand dells of of debt for most borrowers, twenty thousand for Pell Grant recipients. That's still on the table. The uh, Supreme Court. We'll be deciding soon uh, on the validity of that plan, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, I guess the thinking is that the consensus view is that the Supreme Court is going to strike that down, not not allow that to happen. Yeah, that's the that feels like that's the, the current thinking. But yeah, yeah it's still it'd be a little bit of a possible. surprise if they said, "Oh, that okay, go ahead and do that." Right? Yeah, right. But if they did do that, that would e- that would even reduce the, maybe even completely eliminate the impact of the more. Uh, more uh, the end of the moratorium payment moratorium on the economy, right? Because people's debts forgiven, so that's got to have yeah. some positive effect. Yeah, right? Probably all, all else yeah. being equal. Yeah, that's right. right. Okay, we'll see how that plays out. Do we know when the so Bernard? You know when anyone know when that Supreme Court court is thought to be able to rule by the off? end of this month? It should be. Yeah. Oh, by the end of June. June. Okay. By the end of June. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Very good. Um, okay. Anything else on the debt limit, Bernard? Matt? Anything you want to bring up? No. Okay. Fair enough. And uh, or just one last point. I just uh, looking ahead to 2025. Okay, so 2025 is going to be a, a very busy year for fiscal policy because not only does the debt limit become an issue again, the many of the uh, Trump tax cuts from the 2017 Republican tax law oh, are going to yeah. expire then. And right. then you also have the expansion of the Affordable Care Act under the Inflation Reduction Act that also expires around that same time. 
So there's, it's very likely, likely you're going to have a grand bargain between Democrats and Republicans that could potentially um, increase substantially non-defense spending in exchange for a permanent extension of the Trump uh, tax cuts. And if that's the case, we're looking at significantly higher deficits and debt over the next several years and decades. Oh, wait. So that's when's that going to happen? It's going to be happening in the lame duck session after the election and before the oh, new no, it's Congress? going to be during 2025 calendar. 2025. Oh, oh, OK. But the debt limit is January of 2025. 2025. Right? Yeah. So yeah. that the debt limit won't be part of that yeah. grand bargain. Oh, it, it would be because towards the end of 2025, that's when the looming expiration of, of of these other policies will be there. So, and and again, remember the the debt limit will come into effect in early t- uh, 2025, but extraordinary measures and cash on hand will uh, push back right. the drop that date for that. You know, towards okay, the middle of the sense. year. So it, it yeah, so it'll probably be in the middle of uh, 2025 when we see something big in terms of. Oh, so this election is huge. Yeah. This election yeah. is like massively huge. And again, the calculus, it, it changes if it's a Republican sweep, if it's a Democratic sweep, or if that's it's a uh, divided government. Yeah. That's like a that's like a big deal. Mm-hmm. Trump exactly. tax yeah. cuts, uh, debt limit, mm-hmm. uh, non uh, what else? Uh, you mentioned one other thing that's got- uh, the, the Affordable Care Act. Affordable Care Act, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah affordable the care subsidies, act. Subsidies, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'll be- very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Hey, let's play the game, the stats game. Uh, the uh, hope, hopefully people still have the stat they can use. I know I blew through one or two of mine already. Um, the game is we all put forward a statistic. The rest of the group tries to figure that out through questioning and clues, deductive reasoning. The best stat is one that's not so easy. We get it immediately. Not so uh, not so hard that we never get it. Uh, and his uh, bonus, uh, if it's apropos to the topic at hand, which is, uh, well, the labor market, I think, but we can go beyond that. So Marissa, tradition, we missed you last week. Uh, you you would have been very proud of me. I, I think I did well, reasonably well. Chris actually did very well. Our guest did very, very well. Ben Harris did very, oh, yeah. very well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but we missed you. Uh, so what's your stat? Okay. I have two related statistics. and 54.7%. Labor market related? Yes. Is it a participation rate? No. Um, Is it in the payroll survey? One of them is. A one and the other is in the household survey. Right. And and they're related? Yes. Um, Okay. Um, it's not a participation rate, some kind of diffusion index. No. Okay. Um, guys, uh, I'm already, uh, stumped. Uh, it's a tough uh, one. It's a tough one. It says a ratio of something to something. It's a percentage. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There is a conversation going, (laughs) a numerator and a denominator. (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. Uh, is it? Um, can you give us a clue? Sure. Um, so this is something that's released every month by BLS, but it's not in the employment situation news release. It's not published in that news release. Oh, is it in the JOLTS release? The job opening labor turnover survey? No, so it is, it is the household and the payroll survey related. Okay. This is calculated every month, but they don't publish it in that news release. Oh, I see. 
Wow, that's interesting. Is it the okay. survey response rate? Yes. Oh, yes. Very good. <laughs> oh man, explain. Nice. That's a great one. That is a really good one. And go yeah, ahead to so go, Chris. So these are yeah, that was good, Chris. So seventy point seven percent was the percentage of the household survey sample that actually responded to the household survey in the month of May. Fifty four point seven percent was the response rate for this is the you know initial estimate, right? We're going to get three mm. BLS conducts two subsequent revisions to each payroll number that they release. So and the reason that they do that is that each subsequent month they get more and more delayed responses in to the previous month's survey. So 54.7 was the response rate or the collection rate in the payroll survey for the month of May. Mm. So, um, that should go up into the 90, 90%, that response rate usually ends up being by the third collection somewhere in the 90%, but 54.7 is really, really low, even oh, for a first response oh. rate. Um, there was, a there was one that was lower recently. It was like 50% or 49% back in November of last year, but generally on the first try, BLS gets somewhere in the range of 70% of respondents. So this was very, very low on the payroll survey side. On the household survey side, the 70.7% response rate is pretty normal recently. But just to give you some context, it was 75% last May. And before the pandemic, it was well into the 80s. So response rates for all of these surveys, particularly surveys of households, have really fallen to, in some cases, alarmingly low levels since the pandemic. Like in the JOLT survey, the response rate is down to like 33% or something. It's in the 30s, right? And so this just makes, to Chris's point about the statistical significance of all of these numbers, it makes those confidence intervals even wider. So for example, in the household survey, you you need for significant job growth employment growth on the household side, you need something over 600,000 in either direction for that to be significant. Oh, I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, incredible. Uh, that So the response rate for May was, it, it's been falling uh, month to, uh, for quite some time, but it was particularly low in May. For for the the payroll, payroll survey, for the yeah, payroll. for the household survey, More this typical. is pretty normal. It's kind of what it's yeah. been since the end of last year, but uh-huh. it is repeatedly down year after year. You know, so if you go back to if you go back yeah. ten years, the response rate was ninety percent on average. Now the average is something like seventy percent in the household survey. So so it suggests we might be in store for some meaningful revisions then to the yeah. Data. I think it yeah. just underscores you know as we. Yeah. get confused about how to interpret some of these numbers. You have to remember that these are coming from surveys and there's a response rate problem in a lot of these surveys now. So yeah, we have to take everything with some skepticism. Fortunately, right? the payroll survey is ultimately so-called benchmark to actual counts right. of jobs from unemployment insurance records, the so-called what is it, quarterly census of employment and wages, yep. QCEW. And that that, that has shown uh, some big differences, right? I mean, I think I can't remember which quarter, but there was a quarter back in 2022 
yeah, Q2 2022, it was, we actually saw job loss. According yeah, that to was in the summer of last year, yeah. according to the QCW, right? And that's not at all the picture you got from looking at the initial no. employment estimates. And that still hasn't been incorporated fully into the- That's inflation. right. That so won't that be will until be. the next So we will revision. see some downward revisions probably. I think so. I mean, of course, who knows? <laughs> but based on that, all else being equal, we'll see some downward revisions. Interesting. That's Marcia, a great think there's. Do you think there's a large firm bias for the first batch of reporting that of those 54%? I don't know. So? I don't know if that is a thing. I mean, I'm sure BLS has done a ton of research on response rates, so it could be. I mean, most of this is automated by companies now. They don't they don't even have to have a person physically respond to the survey. There's some automation and that that may bias it toward larger companies that have more infrastructure to do that than smaller companies. That was great. The great one. That was a really yeah. cool one. Um, Matt, you want to go next? Sure. Um, I kind of do want to make us guess how much PTO Bernard should be allowed to take in 2025 <laughs> with all the uh, legislation going on. Uh, but no, I have well, one. That's a good it, point. That's good point. I say, Does yeah, Bernard I, ever I take PTO? <laughs> I don't think he's ever taken I am PTO. taking next week for my move to Philly. So. Really? Yeah. That's disappointing, I'd have to say. No, <laughs> He's no. He's going to be closer <laughs> to you, Mark. <laughs> be happy. Only joking. You deserve a boatload of PTO for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And he's he's moving back into the neighborhood, into the hood. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Here in Philly. Good to have him back. Yeah. Um. So, Matt, what, what's your statistic? Let's go with 79. The, the number 79. The number 79. It's not a percent. It's just the number 79. And it is my first time on here, so I got to shake it up. So keep that in mind. Mm. But I'm just market-related. Oh, wait a second. What are the... Oh, it is market-related? Labor market-related, not a percentage, not an index. Is there units to it or is it just 79? You can't tell us the units. Um, I can try to think of a way to do that, but you have to give me a second. I can do that without giving it away. Well, it's not, uh, you're saying it's like 79 barrel uh, dollars per, no. that's not dollars per barrel. Okay. Because no. um, oil is at 76. Is it, um, is it a statistic that was released this past week, Matt? Um, today. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it was, uh, it's, it's longer run. So N equals 79, but. Uh, N it, equals uh, 79. Yeah. It takes this morning's it, report into consideration. Is it labor market data? Did yes. someone say that? Okay. Um, should we know this, Matt? Or are you just like... Um, oh, no, we don't. We shouldn't no. know it. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it's, it's relevant, but it's not something that you would see referenced in the Wall Street Journal or anything. It's just... But um, we know it. You, you, should we know it or not? Uh, no. It would be difficult to guess, but I think it's relevant. I think it's interesting. Is this okay. something you calculated or is actually in the... Uh, yes, I did calculate it. Okay. Uh, oh. 79... No units, labor market related. Probably don't know it, but we should guess it. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, seventy nine. Wait a second. I, I is it? It's not. Is it an index of some sort? Is no. it an age? <laughs> no. Uh, it's the, it's a number of times. It's a, it's oh, 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 yeah. okay. okay. That's a frequency. Okay. Uh, yeah. Seventy nine times. I. The I number of times the unemployment rate has moved oh, more that, than okay. two tenths of a percentage point That's a good in one. a single month or something. 
Exactly. So the number of times it's been oh, 0.3% that, that is amazing, Marissa. Way to go. <laughs> yeah. That, that was, is uh, so cool. Yeah. yeah there's the, there's the cowbell. I Boy, thought, that's really impressive. No chance. Uh, yeah, that's great. So it's the number of times, um, not just in absolute terms, but a 0.3 percentage point increase uh-huh. in one month in the unemployment rate. Um, 79 since the World War II era or post-World War II. And the follow-up would be how many of those of those 79 occurred either in a recession or immediately preceding mm. a recession. Oh. Oh. Oh, that's a really nice. good one. Two-thirds most of, of them. them. Two-thirds. It has to be. Definitely most. Um, two-thirds is great. So 65. So it's a little little uh, higher. Uh, three, <laughs> three quarters. Okay. Close, uh, three. Close. Yeah, yeah. A little more than three quarters. Um, Sorry, no cowbell. <laughs> no cowbell. <laughs> Hey Matt, just a just a suggestion uh, to, in playing the game. Sure. That was that was an admirable statistic. But you might okay. just say this has happened seventy nine times. That that you know yeah. that's fair. That would have been fair. No, it is. I mean, okay. I, yeah, just I, a little bit of a you know <laughs> something. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. the uncomfortable. But the fact that Marissa got it like that, man, that is that was that's scary good. That's very yeah. good. Yeah, very good. That's a good one. Cool. Uh, okay, very good. Uh, Bernard, you want to go next? Yes. Uh, so I have three statistics. They're all related to labor and they're all related to each other uh, within within labor. So it's 1.795 million, negative 110,122, uh, and then 100, a positive 199,670. Uh, the last two numbers are year over year differences in the first one is a total it's a stock what was oh, the last number you said yeah. bernard so it was like 199,670 can you round i mean is rounding going to mess up the, the... Uh, no, uh, no. oh no no i mean okay. I, I could just say 200,000 i guess yeah. okay cuz so, so round cuz i can't i'm not writing this down okay so, so round round so the first me. one is 1.8 million, the, 1. 8 million. Uh, the second would be negative uh, 100,000 and the third would be a positive 200,000 uh, the first number is a stock, and the second two are year-over-year differences. And is it in the house, like a house, like a labor force statistic, like a like a household labor? Is force. it from the jolts? No. It, is it in the household survey? No. It's in the payroll survey. No. no. Oh. Okay. Oh. Hmm. Uh, it's labor market related. One point yep. eight million. Some one point eight million of something. Uh, is it from the BLS? Uh, no, no. It's UI, Is it UI claims related? Yes, yes. The first. Uh, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Continuing claims. Yes, that's the first one. Okay. So the last two, they come from the household poll survey. So they didn't necessarily come oh, out this week, but they man. came out earlier this. Uh... Boy, these guys are tough, man. <laughs> yeah, they're all that man. They're uh, right. I like it. Yeah. That, and it, the house, explain the household poll survey. We haven't talked about that in a long time. So but, it was a, a one time. So the Census Bureau started this survey, which they conduct almost every month or every other month. Uh, and they've they've changed their questions over the course of the pandemic, uh, but they ask a lot of questions about employment status, 
during the so in 2020 and 2021 when we had a lot of the federal pandemic relief there were a lot of questions about stimulus checks the child tax payments uh, that helped uh, provide some granularity there and they also ask a lot of questions about you know mental well-being during the pandemic and uh, nutrition uh, so it's it, it really asks a broad array of questions um, at the national level and also at the state and and uh, metro area level. So can you repeat one more time what those two remaining statistics from the house from the uh, poll survey are? Money. So negative a hundred thousand and uh -huh. a positive two hundred thousand, and they're both year over year changes. And they're related to UI claims. UI Is it claims. the the number of people who say they're relying on unemployment compensation to meet their monthly bills very close but not uh the aspect of these people's is uh is not uh it doesn't have to relate with you know what needs they're meeting with uh by using go ahead UI. tell us go ahead all right so it's um all right so uh obviously the first one is 1.8 million that's continuing claims which uh rose 6000 in the week ended may 20th but more important they're up uh almost 400000 uh, from a year ago but there's a lot of shifting if you look underneath uh that increase there's a, you're seeing a lot of shifts as to who is uh, t uh, receiving uh, unemployment benefits. And that's where the last two statistics uh, come into play. And the negative 100,000, that's the year-over-year -year reduction in the number of people receiving uh, UI claims whose household income is less than 35,000. Uh, and then the 200,000 uh, year-over-year increase, that's the increase in the number of uh, uh, UI beneficiaries whose household income is uh, 150,000 or more. Very so with so we've seen a top line increase in continuing claims, but it's starting to really shift uh, drastically towards the higher end of the income distribution. Um, so so the lowest income folks are really uh, declining. You know they're they're a much they're they're, they're uh, their share of total UI, uh, continuing claims is declining significantly, whereas those at the very top end, they're seeing their share of uh, continuing claims increase. And this makes sense because uh, you've had very high paying industries such as financial services and um, and tech accounting for at some point, you know, up to 70% of job cup announcements uh, late last year. Um, so these are jobs that are gonna be skewed towards the higher end of the distribution. And I would say the implications of this mac uh, from a macroeconomic perspective are relatively benign. Uh, lower income folks tend to have a higher marginal propensity to consume any extra dollar that they receive. So if more of them are exiting the unemployment rolls are in, and are you know becoming employed, you know, I, I think that's going to be a, a good thing for consumers spending. And on the other hand, if higher income folks are uh, accounting for a larger share of um, of uh, UI continuing claims, uh, you know, I think I think they have the wherewithal to 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 uh, to continue to spend more or less during any spell of uh, of unemployment, especially since they account for the lion's share of excess personal savings. Yeah, nationally. that's a, that's a really cool statistic. We never would have ever, ever, ever gotten that, but <laughs> that's really, really cool statistic. We need to follow that on a regular basis. Can I ask, I look at the initial claims carefully uh, and they're you know, 230, 235,000 per week, which feels, it, it, you know, it's up, but it's still low. Uh, it's still, and, yeah, yeah. Very low. And our break-even estimate is, I, I think, Matt, you wrote this, 265,000, meaning 
you need 265,000 claims to be consistent with no job growth. And I think recession would probably be closer to 300K, something like that, just for the 1.8 million continuing claims. Uh, that's up, you say, but is that high, low? What is, how do you, would you characterize that number historically? And then it, it feels low historically. Yeah, still low. Feels low. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's up, but it's still low. And we're in, okay. and, and it's, uh, it's coming from very, very low levels from a year ago. So yeah, I know people have said, look at how high the year over year percent increases in it, but it, it's coming from a super low base. So I, I wouldn't read too much in, into, into year that. over year changes. It's, it's, it's a normalization, not a, a, a red flag. I'll have to say I have a statistic, but I'm a piker compared to you guys. Jeez, you guys have some really good statistics. I mean, I'm not kidding. Those are good ones. Chris, do you have a good one? Not really, but I'll, I'll use it. <laughs> the other ones have been taken. Are going to be so. embarrassed? Uh, no, no. It's, it's, yeah, okay. it's a decent one. It's a decent not, one. Okay. Not my best work, but passable. 25,000 and 106. 25,106. And... Uh, employment related? Yes. In today's job numbers? Yes. In the household survey? Nope. In the payroll survey? Yes. Construction uh, employment? Exactly. Construction yeah. employment. And what's the 106? They are related. So. Oh, oh, oh they're separate, separate statistics. Okay. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, uh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, okay. Is, so 20... It's one, 106, not 106,000. No, 106, 106. Okay. okay. So construction employment increased 25K. That's your first yep. number. And now you're saying the next number is 106. What is 106? Exactly. And is that also in the employment report? Yes. yes. The payroll survey? In the bowels, yes. Oh, really in the bowels? 106. Is it in, in the industry? Is, is it employment gain? It is an industry. It's the construction industry. So, oh, so it's some... Is it, oh, oh is yeah. it like heavy civil construction no. infrastructure related? No, it's got to be, he's got to be cute. Is, it can't be, so there's got to be some cute thing he's doing here. Yeah, that is it a calculation? I got this cute bias. Yeah. 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 Well, because if it's 20, if it's 25K, that's pretty boring. I mean, for him to pick that one, right? So the 106 yeah. has got to be a little juicy in some way. Is that a month over month change? No, the month over month change is zero. So it was 106 this month. It was 106 last month. It's construction related. It is the one of your favorites, Marissa. Marissa, what's your favorite? Something related to home improvement. Home improvement. What's that? Something related to home improvement. Is it in the construction spending uh, release that we got this week? Or no, no, it's no, it's, in the, uh, just, it's the index uh, of the, uh, aggregate weekly hours. Oh, oh yeah, that's a, right. Oh, for construction. Well, construction employment went up 25K, but the number of hours was flat. Oh, man. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, that reminds me, uh, going back to the aggregate numbers, aggregate hours worked, which account for employment increase gain and a average weekly hours, I think was down in the month, I believe. Down 0.1. Down, and that's, that's, told, that's, that's uh, an indication that it wasn't that strong when you think about when you when you look at it that the as a proxy for output for gdp it's suggesting a pretty weak number actually not a strong number that's right back to your point of what your observation marissa the average weekly hours fell now to a mm -hmm. level that is quite low in, yeah even pre-pandemic it's quite low uh so um that you know that uh, takes an edge off that 339K in payroll employment for sure. 
Uh, okay, that's good. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to be embarrassed if I, I'm going to do it real quick. Ready? You guys, lightning run. If you don't get it really fast, it'll be very disappointing, <laughs> especially you, Matt, because you're the newbie. You got to get this right. 80.7%. Tick, 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 uh, labor tick, force participation, participation. Age workers. Not labor force participation. EPOP. Oh, EPOP. EPOP. Prime age EPOP. EPOP. Yeah. EPOP. Matt, wh where was your voice? Did you see what? Uh, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, I should have. <laughs> you I yeah, yeah, I mean, you guys are on. quick. You're very quick. See, this is what Marissa does. She, yeah. you know, she goes right for the jugular. She doesn't give you a chance. So it's the employment to population ratio for prime age workers, which actually ticked down, by the way, and is, uh, you know, it's elevated consistently with a tight labor market, but not an inordinately tight labor market. This is kind of where it was, you know, pre-pandemic, uh, going back to, you know, our observations about unemployment and labor force participation. So again, another statistic to say, yeah, it's tight labor market, but not like screamingly over overdone and it's starting to ease up, uh, which is, is, is what we need. Okay, uh, we're running out of time. Uh, there's so many topics, as I said. I wanted to talk about AI. We're going to talk about AI, but... Uh, I think we need to do it at a different podcast because there's just so much to talk about. And Matt, I also wanted to, I'll get you back on because I want you to talk about the business to business sales data. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe real quickly, uh, just summar summarize what that is and what it's saying, uh, because I think that's apropos here as well, but I'll have you back. We'll have you back on to talk about that in more detail, but just give us a sense of that B2B data. Sure. Uh, coarsely, it's tracking the spending that one business is spending to another, so B2B, and that's based off of uh, really accounts receivable data. So if you can aggregate that, you can roll that up enough, and you can also slice it and say what's happening in California or Pennsylvania, but you can aggregate all of that spending up to the US level and say, what does business look like? What is the dollar amount happening uh, or that's occurring uh, month to month? Uh, how are businesses spending money? Um, even at a top level, that's a pretty good proxy for economic activity. So that was always our goal with, with trying to uh, manipulate this data to be able to tell a story about kind of the trajectory of the U.S. economy. Um, there's some oddities to it and, and some massaging and some manipulation that we've kind of gone back and forth on. But but what it is signaling and what we're confident it is signaling is uh, kind of aligns with, with, the, with the story outside of the labor market. So what GDP is saying, which is this U.S. economy is slowing down. Uh, but it's not contracting. There, there's a deceleration going on. Um, it's relatively timely. So it's a good way for us to kind of keep our finger on the pulse of of, of what's happening in a, a pretty timely manner. Um, so, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it more. Yeah, yeah and, we should come back because it feels, I mean, actually, the weakness in March, April was a little more than I expected because uh, mm -hmm. this is all nominal dollars. So if you adjust for inflation, it felt like we were getting some actual declines in business to business sales in aggregate across the economy. Uh, but, uh, but we'll watch that in maybe in a month or so, we'll get another month is worth of data. This is data we collect Moody's collects based on accounts receivable. We'll come back and uh, maybe we'll uh, spend a little more time on that. Uh, okay. Let's uh, end the conversation. Given all the data, uh, our odds of recession again, and uh, let's uh, two numbers. Uh, what's the probability of recession starting this uh, this year in calendar year 2023? And what is the probability of recession starting in calendar year 2024? Um, of course, 2023 is half. We're, we're you know almost halfway through the the, the calendar year, so probabilities are starting to come in. I think, but but nonetheless, uh, let's uh, let's uh, let's let's go around the horn and get people's uh, perspective on that. Marissa, I'll start with you. 
What are your probabilities? For a recession starting this year, I'd say 40%. Okay. Um, For a recession starting next year, I'd say 55, 60, somewhere in that range. Pick a number. You're on the record. Seven and a half. There you go. Okay. Um, And why, uh, can I ask, uh, will probabilities be so much higher next year? Um, So it's just arithmetic, I guess. Yeah. I mean, this year is almost over. We just keep seeing strong economic data, really. Right. So, and now we have the debt ceiling thing largely behind us. That was the biggest near-term threat to a recession. Um, So I think it's very, it's pretty unlikely this year, but the, we don't think the Fed's going to raise rates again, but they could. I mean, I wouldn't argue too strongly if somebody said that there's another one or two rate hikes this year. We're already in a high interest rate environment, relatively speaking. Even if they don't raise rates again, we don't think they're going to lower them. Rates are going to be you know, at the level that they're at probably at least until early next year. I think that's going to shake some things out of the tree, as we saw with SVB. I think that businesses and consumers are reacting and will grapple with the high interest rate environment. Um, And I just think the longer this goes on without a recession, the, the higher the odds are that something else happens in this environment of high interest rates and kind of a cooling economy that could push the economy into a recession. So I don't think it would take much for something geopolitical or a spike in energy prices or something like that to come along and derail things. So 40% this year and 57.5% next year. Yeah. And and can I just ask, has your sentiment improved or darkened? Uh, I think my sentiment for this year has improved a, a bit over the mm-hmm. past few months, just as we mm-hmm. keep getting good data. And mm-hmm. um, it's for next year, it's kind of stayed where, where I've you been, been for the past yeah, okay. few months. Okay. Okay. Uh, Bernard, what about you? So I would say 30% odds for this year and then 50 for next year. Uh, and it's not just the debt limit that's made me a bit more optimistic, but I'd say the one statistic this uh, this week that really made me feel good was the quits rate, um, uh-huh. which ticked back down to 2.4%, right. which is actually, um, you had a month in 2019 where it, the quits rate was also 2.4%. Um, and the reason why I focus on the quits rate, I know the markets were a bit upset after the jolts report because they saw the increase in, in job openings. But uh, for me, quits are just a much better indicator of uh, of the labor market. There's a lot of issues with job openings. You, it's very tough to tell how aggressively firms are um, uh, are, are really uh, recruiting for a given job openings. But uh, for me, quits are are really more of an unambiguous sign of uh, confidence in in the labor market, in the economy, and the ability to find better paying jobs. Um, and the fact that uh, it's coming down is practically where it was in 2019. Uh, it suggests that wage growth should start to ease uh, in the next quarter or so. It's still it's, it's still going to take time, but it's going wage growth is going to start to head in the right direction based on the historical relationship between the two. 
and I focus on wage growth because the Fed is saying they're also plugged into wage growth as uh, as the key mechanism by which to bring down inflation, especially especially service sector inflation. Mm-hmm. So if we do start to see wage growth uh, coming down as uh, as uh, presaged by the by the quits rate, I think that uh, reduces the the potential for a policy error by the Fed. Yeah, I agree. That's a great statistic. Yeah, um, the quit rate's really important, and and it feels like uh, wage growth is already rolling over, but this should that should really help. Is it? Yeah, presaged? and also the. the or, is it presaged or, or presaged? Per, uh, I don't know. Previewed or I don't know. Yeah. What do you think, Matt? I think he's. I think he's got that wrong. But anyway, Versaged. go ahead. Presaged. It seemed very. I don't know. Sounds very French. It's very, very French. Okay, go ahead, Bernard. You had something else you wanted to say? Yeah, and I mean, also, I mean, quits directly contribute to very strong wage growth, especially in this period, because uh, historically, the premium, the wage uh, growth premium for switching yeah. jobs, is about 0.6 uh, percent uh, percentage points, whereas. You know, late last year, it was uh, um, job switchers were earning uh, two percentage points more in wage we, growth compared. We, yeah, Chris has got his head cocked. I think what he means is that the the growth rate is yeah, uh, uh, point six percentage points higher, points higher for, yeah. for a switcher than a uh, uh, for someone who doesn't switch jobs. Okay, oh, and now switch. it's one point two percent. It it hit as high as two percentage points. Two percentage points. Yeah, yeah, which okay. is just. That's a big difference. something that, that you've never seen, and that has directly contributed to strong wage growth. Recently. Right. Okay. That that that's um, that uh, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, thirty, per, you said thirty percent and fifty percent. Yes. Yep. Okay, Matt. What what are your odds? I echo a lot of what Bernard said. I'm probably um, a little bit less optimistic longer term, but near term, I'd put it at thirty percent or a third, maybe, chance, um, and that's a function of household balance sheets that's the labor market labor hoarding all of those things yep. that the firm firm seems to be doing to uh avoid any kind of uh you know mass layoffs i think those things are real and they're a buffer on any downturn um longer term i i am maybe a little bit less uh optimistic about wage growth coming down so i would say the fed may have to push the gas pedal a little harder or tap the brakes i guess a little harder um so I'd put that at 55% in 2024. Uh, I think there's there's going to be real pressure to uh, do what they said. And, and even if 3.5% wage growth is just an estimate about what's compatible with inflation, they feel like they've, I feel like they've boxed themselves in and, and that's where things need to be. Uh, and they're not getting a ton of help from productivity growth. So uh, I think there's a lot of pressure to keep rising, raising rates and uh, eventually, again, Got something it. breaks. Got it. Um, uh, okay, Chris. Uh... I've been been waiting for your uh, your probabilities uh, with intrepidation. <laughs> Go ahead. So uh, for twenty three, I'm with uh, with Marissa. I think forty percent. It's come 40? down. Uh huh. Yeah, but um, still some significant headwinds there. Yep. And then for uh, twenty four, I'm sticking with sixty five percent. Okay, you're still high. there. Yeah. yeah, it hasn't come in. You're still pretty much where you've been. Pretty much. Yeah. And for the same reasons, the, kind of what Matt was saying, that uh, the economy remains strong enough that inflation doesn't come in fast enough and the Fed has to keep on raising rates or something else comes along and knocks us off kilter. Yeah, I worry about the consumer, right? The, the student loan repayments are just another uh, weight on a lot of consumer spending. 
and the excess savings that we've talked about in the past, they continue to dwindle. So I'm worried that we get through the end of the year and really consumers start to be tapped out, especially if interest rates are, even if they're not rising, even at this level, mm-hmm. I think it, it starts to weigh more and more on housing and autos and other spending. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm in a third for this year uh, and uh, a half for next year, 50% next year. So I think I'm, is that you, Bernard? I think are very close to. Very close to, yeah. 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 And yeah, yeah. With, a, with a bias to uh, lowering it. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I, I hear you. Uh, 50% obviously is a pretty high probability. Yep. That's, yep. you know, any scenario pretty high. I, and I do think the most likely thing that does us in is uh, the Fed ha- feels like it has to continue raising interest rates to bring in to slow growth and bring in uh, wages and uh, price pressures. Uh, and it's in, in a, the, the current uh, funds rate target of just over 5% isn't in their minds enough that they have to keep pushing rates higher. They, I, I, our, our terminal rate and our baseline forecast is is just over 5% where we are. So that's, that's what we expect. But the the risk is that they will have to. They feel like they will have to step on the brakes harder, push rates up more, and at some point, you know, they push so hard that it pushes us into recession, makes us so vulnerable to anything else that goes wrong, and we we go in. I I want to though throw a couple uh, thoughts out there uh, with regard to the Fed. You know what they will do, and this is as opposed to what I think they should do, but what they will mm-hmm. do, and that it may be that they might not be as aggressive in raising rates, even if inflation remains a bit elevated. So what I mean by that, suppose the scenario is that CPI, when well, I'm using CPI because everyone's kind of uses that as the benchmark, uh, it, it's right now just under 5%. It peaked at 9% back last summer that I, if, I feel pretty confident. I, actually, I'd say highly confident it's going to be close to 3% by the end of the year going into the next, just simply because of the slowing in the cost of uh housing services, which we, we which is tied back to rents, which have gone flat to down. So say we're hanging at three coming into 2024. Here's the thing. Will, would, the econo- would the Fed actually sacrifice the economy at the altar of a 2% inflation rate? When my sense is, if you ask them what inflation target they would pick if they could pick it today, uh, it's not 2%. It's probably... Three percent. They probably want a three percent unemployment rate. The idea being that at two percent, given the slow real potential growth rate of the economy, if the economy ever gets into trouble, you're pretty. They have to lower rates so fast to get it back down to the zero lower bound pretty quickly. Uh, and if they that happens, then they've got some difficult choices around negative rates or more likely quantitative easing, and they don't like to do that. So, if if three percent's their actual what they desire for their target, would they actually worry too much about getting us down to 2% that fast? I mean, couldn't they be a little bit more leisurely about it? And here's the other thing. That's an election year. We're talking about an election and, and, you know, the fed is independent. Yes, but it's a very political animal, right? At the end of the day. And they, and especially it feels like this presidential election is going to be highly politicized and they don't want to get caught up in that in in raising rates and pushing the economy and effectively potentially deciding who the next president is right i mean would they want to do that so given those two things i my thought is they might 
be surprisingly dovish. You know, inflation may not be coming in as fast as you know uh, they would like, but they'd be willing to live with it because, well, for the reasons I just gave. Uh, what What do you think about that, Chris? A uh, nice theory. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I, I, I can't see it. Didn't it, might be the right thing to, it may yeah. very well be the right thing to do. Uh, but to your point, I think they've committed to this 2% if they back I off. I don't know that there's, yeah. I, I, I guess it depends I, what the trajectory is, right? If you're yeah. saying, are we, are we, uh, is it a. It's three and it's, it's like. It's three, it's but not with going, a downward. Bias? Downward bent, you know. Okay. It, it feels like at some point in the future, I don't know when that future is. It's not the next six months, but some point in the future, it's going back to something less than three. And by the way, again, I do I really want to get back to two? I mean, uh, really? Two and a half percent maybe on the CPI. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I don't know. Anyone else have a view on that uh, that uh, theory I just threw, threw out there? I I think they'll look at the trajectory. So if it's three or close to three, but it's been, even if it's slowly moving lower, particularly if core starts moving lower, core has been stuck for the past few months. But if that really starts moving lower, then I think they can say long and variable lags, it's working. We can stay where we are. You know, I think if core starts moving higher or, or isn't budging at all, then I think that they act. Keep going. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Um, uh, I, I Actually, the other thing I wanted to bring up, have you guys looked, and Bernard, maybe you have, because you look at these CPI numbers carefully, the CPI excluding housing services, just take the housing services out. Have you looked at that? So it's a CPI for core services excluding? No, no. Overall CPI, just excluding services. That's a... a um, excluding, excluding housing. Housing services, yeah. Uh, uh, cost of shelter. Oh, uh, okay. Um, it, you I know, if you not, look at it, yeah. you should look at it. Look okay. at the year-over-year growth. It's now into, into the threes year-over-year and okay. headed south. It's headed south, south okay. which again, gives me comfort because <laughs> I, I feel very confident that the, cost of, the growth in the cost of housing services, the cost of shelter is going to come in. Is going to come in. It's already peaked. Yeah. 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 It's already peaked. Anyway. Okay. Well, that was a great conversation. Uh, and uh, anything else to add? I, I guess I, I'll, I'll throw out, we, we are having our uh, a conference, an in-person conference in Wilmington, Delaware on June the 20th. Uh, and we invite you up. So if you're interested in attending, please get in contact uh, with us and uh, we'll uh, set you up with that. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Chris, you're speaking. I'm speaking. Uh, we've got a action-packed uh, agenda as well, uh, talking about lots of different aspects of the economy and different uh, threats to the economy of uh, commercial real estate, um, what's going on in the banking system, consumer credit. We talked about student loans, so I think people would find it interesting. Okay, uh, with that, I think we're going to call this a podcast. Uh, thanks, everyone. Talk to you next week. <laughs>